If you're like me, though inspiring, you know it can be really difficult to relate to the way that God used the apostles and the book of Acts. Have you ever done that? Have you ever read through the book of Acts and almost found some of these characters kind of unrelatable? Like these men, they had been hand-selected by Jesus himself. They were champions of the faith, pillars of the church, authors of the New Testament. I mean, good grief, their names, this is how unrelatable they are, their names, the names of the apostles are written on the cornerstones of the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, verse 14. Though it shouldn't be the case, it, it can often be so easy to write off the example that they set for us because of their unique experience and exposure that they had personally with Jesus. And yet, as you work your way through the history of the early church, beyond John or Peter, the Apostle Paul, beyond these men, there is one man involved in the early church in particular that for me at least jumps off the page, and it's because of his relatability, his name, is Stephen. And here's why I love and am so encouraged by his story. In contrast to most of the other characters of the book of Acts, Stephen is incredibly relatable to you and I because his Christian experience began and developed no differently than ours. Like consider for just a minute a bit of a profile of Stephen. Stephen was not an apostle. Wasn't even a B-possible. Like there's nothing in the record that implies that Stephen had ever been present for the earthly ministry of Jesus. There's no evidence that he had been an eyewitness of Jesus' death and his resurrection or his ascension to heaven like the others. Though I guess it's possible that Stephen may have been in Jerusalem to see the events that occurred on the day of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's unlikely that Stephen had been a part of the original 120. You see, in Stephen, we have presented for us the first, second-generation Christian in Scripture. Sure, by the time he's introduced to us in Acts 6, Stephen had developed quite a reputation for himself, so much so that he was hand-selected to be one of the first deacons of the early church. And yet nothing about his story indicates that he had been afforded any type of privilege at all. Like this morning, we're going to take a hard look at Stephen. Like not only because he's relatable, but because his life illustrates what I like to call the fingerprints of faithfulness. In Stephen, we will see a man with no advantage, no special standing, used by the Lord to affect his world in such an incredible way that he's included in the very pages of our Bible. You see, Stephen is important because he illustrates the exact same life that God has called you and I to live as well. It's a wonderful example. Let's read his story, part of it anyway. Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, 
did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freemen, Syrians, Alexandrians, those from Sicily and Asia. They arose disputing with Stephen. So they get in an, a conversation, an argument. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say that we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and they came upon Stephen, upon Stephen seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat on the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. You know, for some reason, and at some point, maybe through accident or through the invitation or witness of another Christian, Stephen finds himself being exposed to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. At some point in his life, Stephen stumbled across someone teaching God's word. He listened. And as he listened, he began to grapple under the weight of a deep and growing conviction. Keep in mind, Stephen, or Stephanos, was a Hellenistic Jew living in Jerusalem, meaning he's of Hebrew descent, but he had adopted Greek culture. Very modern. He had been raised, while with a religious upbringing in Judaism, in a Grecian world. While attempting to live a life consistent, yes, with the law, you can imagine that Stephen, over time, struggled with the allure of culture, that balancing act. Whether it occurred immediately, or maybe over a period of time, we're only left to speculate. But at some juncture, because of this growing conviction of the weight of his own sin, maybe even coupled with the failure of religion, and the emptiness of the world, this Greek society, ultimately, the persuasive case for Jesus. At some point, some juncture, teaching of God's Word, the conviction of the spirit, the disillusionment with the world, the emptiness of religion, Stephen comes to a point in time where he makes a decision to follow Jesus, the man from Nazareth. You know, as we all, Stephen came to a point where he rejected his self-righteousness. He repented of his sin. He surrendered his life to Christ. And he accepted for himself Jesus' permanent sacrificial atonement. And in this moment of his conversion, Stephen, like you and I, immediately experienced the regeneration of his very being as he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Stephen's life, once shackled by sin, weighed down by the burden of religious condemnation, had been set free by Jesus. Stephen experienced forgiveness, redemption, salvation. You know, it seems reasonable to conclude that soon after making his decision, Stephen would go public with his faith. 
He would be baptized, letting the world know that he was all in following Jesus. This outward demonstration of an inward transformation. And Stephen knew, rightfully so, that in declaring his faith to his world, his family, his friends, those presently hostile to the church, letting them know he was a follower of Jesus, Stephen knew with the climate at hand that that decision, that declaration would carry severe consequences. There would be repercussions. Additionally, we can reason just by the, the evidence of the text, Stephen began attending his local church. He gets saved. He's filled with the Spirit. He plugs in. Amazing. He's baptized. And Jerusalem, Stephen, would enjoy all of the benefits of being part of this new family of God. Yes, he would lose friends. Yes, he would lose family. Yes, he would be shunned by some, but he would be accepted by others. In the process, Stephen would receive from the church, moving forward with this baby faith, godly instruction through the faithful teaching of God's Word, the continued teaching. He'd experience the joy of community, genuine community, He would benefit from the accountability of of godly influences, the apostles. As Stephen continued to grow in his new faith, at some point again, he would come to an important realization that, you know, being a part of a church community was not only about receiving, but it was also about giving. Not just taking but contributing. It would appear that in response to all that Jesus had done in his life, Stephen, not given a title, not given a directive, he just simply started serving the needs of those around him. He wasn't waiting for an invitation. He wasn't waiting for a summons. He wasn't waiting to be recognized. He just started seeing needs and moved by the grace of God, started meeting those. Over time, as Stephen continued to grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ, he would develop slowly but surely a good reputation before all the people were told. Stephen was the type of person who was teachable, and he modeled a humble spirit, and he remained submissive to the authorities that God had in his life. Acts chapter 6 is clear. That because of his good reputation, because of his servant's heart, when the need arose concerning the care of a group of widows, all of the people in this church, along with the apostles, universally agreed that Stephen was an ideal candidate for this new position they had, re- they had created known as deacon. As such, we know Stephen was a man full of wisdom. Full of the Holy Spirit, we're told. Full of faith, conviction, but also grace. And that Stephen was a man known as being filled with the Holy Spirit. So much so that he demonstrated the Spirit through Stephen great powers, wonders, signs. This word power we find in the text, it's it's dynamis. It's the word that we get dynamite from. This morning's text reveals this Holy Spirit dynamic power. It not only equips Stephen with the gift of service to fulfill his task as deacon, but it also empowered him 
with the gift of evangelism, another one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You see, Stephen had the ability and this evangelistic outreach to perform great wonders and signs. The evidence of God's work in his heart, in his life, was clear by just an examination of his life. He was doing wonderful things. You know, the very fact that Stephen was even having disputes with these freedmen revealed the table waiter, the deacon. He had a heart for the lost. Yes, he had a heart to serve practical needs in his church, but he also had foresight outside of the walls of the church for those that were lost, those that were perishing. I can see as I play out Stephen's life in my mind, his work around the church, he finishes it up, ties up the bag of garbage, throws it into the pickup truck, makes sure the, the bathroom are clean, the toilet paper's restocked. He checks with the pastor. He sets up the schedule for when we're going to do the service stream recording, making sure the sound booth's uh, powered off and the coffee pots are cleaned. He finishes his work busily, hangs up his, his, his garments, and then he goes out that evening, not solicited, not asked, not sent, not directed, but he just goes out organically to a local watering hole. Why? To mail big up, to, to make conversation in order to share Jesus Christ. He wanted to share the gospel with the lost. Keep in mind, as in the ministry of Jesus and later the apostles, the manifestation of these great wonders and signs manifesting through Stephen, they serve to demonstrate God's anointing on Stephen and confirmation of the legitimacy of what he was saying, his message. You know, the first thing that you should note from Stephen's example is that a Christian's purpose, you and I, like your purpose in life, it's very simple. Your purpose in life is to be faithful with the things that God places before you. That's it. It doesn't get more complex or complicated than that. I have found, and maybe you can relate to this, that Christians really do struggle with the concept of purpose. While most people want to live their lives to have meaning, they want their life to matter to impact the kingdom. So many will grow frustrated in their present circumstances. And here's why. They don't know how these things in my today fit within God's plan for my life tomorrow. You know, because most have a sincere desire to make an impact for Jesus. Sometimes what appears to be mundane, what might come across as being pointless, can become just difficult to handle. Discontentment stirs up within our hearts. You know, many Christians who find themselves shackled to a job in which they believe has no eternal value whatsoever, they end up wondering, questioning, grappling with if they're actually just wasting the very life God has for them. You know, part of this struggle rest with the conventional wisdom that in order to successfully reach a destination, one has to first know the destination you are seeking to reach. 
you know, that once two data points are determined, then we can map out the best, most efficient course of action. It's logical. It's rational. Like many of us reason under this wisdom that if God would just reveal His purpose for my life, then I know what I'm supposed to be doing to get to God's purpose for my life. But sadly, this mindset, this two data points perspective, it, conti- it contributes to the frustration. Because when you study Scripture, God actually works in the lives of His people completely counterintuitive to this way of thinking. In fact, instead of the destination determining the course of action, often it is the course of action that sets the destination. Think about Abraham. Leave Ur of the Chaldeans. Go where? That's the land I'll show you. Again, the destination didn't matter. It was the journey. That's what was most important to God. You know, in a teaching in Luke chapter 19 on the topic of service, Jesus establishes a very simple principle concerning the kingdom of God. He says, if you're faithful over a little, I will make you faithful over much. While it's true this means proven faithfulness is the only way to greater responsibilities, Jesus is also telling us That the purpose for each of our lives is not the task at hand, but being faithful in the task at hand. Don't miss that. The purpose for your life is not the task at hand, but being faithful in the task at hand. To what Jesus says, if you're faithful over little, I'll make you faithful over much. You know, little and much come secondary to the dominant word faithful in the equation. If you see God's purpose for your life as being some work that God wants you to do, as opposed to simply being faithful to do the work God has before you, then I hope you understand you will find the Christian experience to be frustrating. It's about faithfulness. Like, this is, <laughs> this is why... I think the whole idea of trying to live, and there's like this catchphrase within Christianity, the purpose-driven life. Like aside from packaging itself really nice in the self-improvement section of Amazon, that idea, the purpose-driven life, it actually, it's detrimental because it fosters a lot of Christian frustration because it's not in line with the way that God has structured the life of faith. You see, Stephen demonstrates for us that the purpose for every believer is the act of being faithful concerning the things that God has charged to your care presently. Now, it's true. Stephen, he would progress to greater responsibilities. If you're faithful over little, I'll make you faithful over much. Faithful over this, greater responsibilities come. That's true. We see that in Stephen. He goes from being an unrecognized simple servant to being a recognized servant leader, a deacon, to now an anointed evangelist. But this is what's important. 
Never once, from Stephen's example, was he ever focused on anything other than faithfully caring for the things God had directly placed in front of him. Like, he didn't see each thing as a stepping stone to something greater. He was content with where he was at, knowing God had control of what was to come. Christian, if you trust God with your life, then you need to recognize that no matter how trivial, how pointless, how mundane you might think the task in front of you is, no, God has placed those things in your life for a reason. There is an eternal purpose and whatever's in front of you, whatever's before you, and that purpose is for you to be faithful. Keep in mind, the most glorious words that you ever want to hear Jesus say to you is well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Like it would seem that the great evaluation method of heaven focuses on faithfulness over accomplishment. The second thing, that you should note from Stephen's example is that a Christian should expect the world to treat you like they treated Jesus. Now, though Stephen's primary role was church-centric, you know, caring for the physical needs of those within the church body, as mentioned, it would seem Stephen had a heart to preach the gospel to the lost, to evangelize. At some point, Stephen... He's an evangelist, or even likely the church's first apologist. Not that he's apologizing, but he's making arguments defending the faith. Either way, we do know that Stephen's target audience, the people he was engaging with, were Jews from what was known as the synagogue of the freedmen. History tells us that this was likely a prominent synagogue in Jerusalem, that had branches or satellite campuses in Cyrene, which was an important African city in what is today the, in Libya, uh, Alexandria, the capital of Egypt, and Sicily. Needless to say, as Stephen's engaging these people, he has a tough audience. Tough audience. Luke tells us these men came disputing with Stephen. Disputing. In the Greek, this word disputing, it presents the idea that they would gather kind of formally and debate matters of theology. No doubt, lots of overlap between Christianity and Judaism. And in the process of these debates and conversations, dialogue, Stephen's efforts, according to the text, indeed began bearing some fruit. Luke says that there was a group that wasn't able to withstand him or resist him. They couldn't oppose him. And then Luke lists two reasons why. Both the wisdom and the spirit in which Stephen spoke. Those are two words you should underline. Wisdom and spirit. The word wisdom is this Greek word sophia. Meaning to be full of intelligence. Like this indicates that Stephen was able to substantiate his arguments with facts. Like that Stephen was able to engage in a dialogue 
with a measure of education. He could defend his positions using a combination of, of God's Word, the Old Testament, logic, reason. Keep in mind, Stephen, he went into these conversations, these disputes, with ammo. <laughs> he went in armed. He studied well, prepared well. You know, tragically, there are too many stupid people out there speaking for Christianity. Don't be one of them. Study to show yourself approved under God, a workman. Being able to rightly divide the word of truth. Know your stuff. The second word we have here, in addition to wisdom, or being full of intelligence, knowing his stuff, he's also characterized as, as having, he's full of this, this spirit, or pneuma. Though we know this word refers to the Holy Spirit. It can also describe a person as having a pleasant disposition. Now, though his audience perceives Stephen to be a pleasant person, that in engaging a dialogue with Stephen, he wasn't a jerk. He wasn't mean about it. He came with facts and figures. Man, he had his sword. He had his sharpshooter. He was engaging in combat. But in doing so, there was a pleasantness to him. He was not threatening, not combative, sharp, but not tacky. They just chalked it up to him being a nice guy, when in reality, they were experiencing the Spirit of God working in and through the life of Stephen. In a sense, you would say that Stephen was being the salt of the earth. It was something they could taste tangibly. It was flavor. <laughs> you can imagine, in addition to the soundness of his arguments, what made Stephen so persuasive was he was able to present his position in a way that the opposing side didn't feel threatened or forced to respond in a defensive measure. Apparently, the way Stephen made his argument was just as persuasive as the argument he was making. Now, sadly, so many, they view engaging the lost as, as mortal combat. You know, don't forget the goal is not only to win the argument, but to also win the soul. Sadly, the arguments that Christians make end up being lost because of pride and ego and attitude. Luke says that there were some not able to resist. But he also makes it abundantly clear that there was a contingency of those who not only resisted, but grew vindictive towards Stephen in the process. You know, it's true, a hurt ego and a prick conscious can be a very dangerous combination. What's interesting about this story is that we see the same playbook being used to target Stephen that was used some four years earlier to target Jesus. Again, look at the text. We're, we're told that they secretly induced men, they set up false witnesses, they stirred up the people. Again, in the Greek... This means that those who were resisting Stephen privately bribed men to commit a crime by speaking false accusations. These men would claim falsely that Stephen was speaking blasphemous words against Moses, against God, against the temple, against the law and their customs. In essence, their strategy is they twisted his words. It would seem their goal was to intentionally incite a mob to act out against Stephen 
knowing full well that Stephen had done nothing worthy of such an outcry. And note, this outrage, it it did not reflect the general sentiment towards Stephen, but was instead driven by the ill will of a few sour apples who found Stephen's words offensive to their religious conscience. They lashed out at the messenger because they hated and resisted the message. I want you to consider something just very quickly. I'm going to ask a very simple but forthcoming question. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, what type of relationship do you expect to have with the lost secular world around you? Seriously, think about that. Like, what's the expectation? Like, do you expect the world to be as tolerant of your beliefs as they want you to be of theirs? Like, like, do you think we're playing the same game, honestly? Like, what are your expectations? You should remember Stephen. He was doing nothing wrong. He believed in Jesus. He was a faithful churchgoer, a volunteer. We're given no indication Stephen went out proselytizing, but that he was simply sharing his faith with those who were interested in hearing. And while his speech may have been meek, and his life above reproach, because Stephen spoke the truth, he immediately became polarizing. Some accepted, others resisted. Please understand, the reason people find the truth so offensive is that truth is, by its very nature, exclusive and divisive. Like, by definition, truth distinguishes between what is right from what is wrong. And since truth is the one position that refuses to accept all other positions as being equal, it's the speaker of truth that's often branded as being offensive and not tolerated. Like Stephen's story illustrates an important reality for you and I, especially living in our current political climate. How people respond to truth directly determines how they'll respond to the person speaking the truth. In fact, this is just the general lesson presented in the way the world treated Jesus. If a person accepts truth, they'll accept the truth speaker. But if a person rejects truth, every single Christian, you and I, should go ahead and expect that that person will not only reject you, but will actively resist you. It is a simple fact that since we live in a culture that is growing increasingly intolerant of fundamental Christian truths, we live in a culture growing increasingly intolerant of the Christians who speak those truths. I could stand here and give you example after example after example. The easiest, ESPN, owned by Disney, will brand, smear, and ostracize any person who takes any other position 
than the full celebration of homosexuality or transgenderism. They will brand you as being a bigoted homophobe or transphobe, unfit to have a voice in the public square. They will run you out. They will brand you. They will ostracize. They will seek to destroy you for having a biblical position. The worldwide leader in sports that doesn't even begin to get into the media or the politicians or the policy. Like, understand, Stephen's only crime was that he refused to leave his beliefs at church. Though Stephen would lose his life because he spoke those words of truth to a group of people that didn't want to hear them, we would be wise to remember what Jesus himself warned. John 15, 20, we're told, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Stephen engages in this debate. Rumors are spread around him. He's brought before the council. Then they take him outside of the walls and they stone him to death because he wouldn't leave his beliefs at home. You know, the third and final thing that you should note from Stephen's example is that a Christian's commission, our commission, you don't have to overcomplicate any more than we're to be a witness by shining a light into the world around us. That's our calling. We should be faithful. We should expect to be treated like Jesus. And in the end, our focus should be shining a light knowing that that's a witness. Ultimately, this mob, they bring Stephen before the Sanhedrin, the same group that had Jesus executed. And while he's standing there, hearing one false accusation after another, lies and slander, we read in our text of one of the most peculiar things happening in all of the Bible. Luke tells us that as Stephen faced these men, everyone began to notice that his face looked like the face of an angel. <coughs> now, because no one in that room had likely ever seen an angel, and Luke is getting his account from the eyewitnesses who were present that day, we understand this phrase is being used to describe the fact that his countenance, it had such an, an aura, a glow, it was heavenly in nature. Something was radically different. Supernatural was occurring. The face of an angel. And I love the council's reaction. Luke says that they all began to look steadfastly at Stephen. This word steadfastly, it means that their eyes were fastened upon him. They were staring. What they were witnessing was so dramatic, so strange. They just stared at it. What a moment. Consider how this happened. As a faithful servant, Stephen had been a witness for Jesus indeed. As an evangelist, Stephen had been and will be a witness for Jesus in word. But in this moment, something totally different is taking place, isn't it? He's not doing anything. He's not saying anything. Stephen is being a witness by simply being. That's powerful. 
Now, because we realize words and deeds don't always reveal the true heart of a person, while it is true that the real heart of a person will always manifest itself through words and deeds, this idea of being a witness, I hope you understand, being a witness is not predicated upon what you do or what you say. Being a witness is predicated rather upon who you are. You know, it's a reality of life that who you are will always determine what you do. You see, who Stephen was was clearly on display for all to see. He wasn't having to do or say anything. It was evident. You could see it. He was a man filled with the light of the world. The Spirit of God Himself was on display. Does your life communicate the same type of witness by just being? Who are you? Like, are you more than flesh and bone? Are you more than your dysfunctional personality or your genetic predispositions? You know, in Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul, he answers that question by declaring, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I will admit this idea of Christ living in me seems strange, doesn't it? Like this is why when teaching on this concept, like Jesus would, would use an illustration that everyone could understand. He would talk about light. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus not only identifies himself as being the light of the world, but he said that the person who follows him should not walk in darkness, but have, possess the light of life. With this in mind, we understand that upon salvation and regeneration, that dark void of the human soul, left deadened by sin, is brought to glorious life by the light of God, indwelling, filling. As Paul would state in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, because of Jesus' great love, which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive. Because we have been filled with this light, the light of the world. As followers of Jesus, we're not only light bearers, but we're now responsible to shine that light into the world. In Matthew 5, verse 16, Jesus commanded those who have the light of life to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Like this is where this strange detail about Stephen proves helpful. Like clearly... What's happening to him, it's some type of supernatural occurrence. But, but don't overlook the obvious lesson. Stephen was doing nothing to manufacture this heavenly countenance everyone could see. Stephen was simply being. He was a witness. Because the light of the world it had, it had filled his heart. It had filled his life. And in this moment, it was shining through for all to see. See, all, ha all Stephen had to do was sit and 
be still and allow God to do the rest. You know, though we've been given a great commission to go into the world, as witnesses of the resurrected Jesus, understand this should not be cumbersome. Being a witness of Jesus should not be difficult. As a light bearer, our job is not to shine the light, but to simply let our light shine. I'll repeat that. As a light bearer, our job is not to shine the light, but to simply let our light shine. Now, this is what's so challenging about this story. Since Stephen's experience began and developed no differently than yours and mine, there's no reason that God can't work through your life in an equally powerful and even dramatic way. Like This is why there's so much we can learn from the example that Stephen established. I mean, he demonstrates fingerprints of faithfulness we should share. If you want to hear one day, as Stephen did on this day, he was stoned to death. Well done, good and faithful servant. If you want upon your death to look to heaven and see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, you would be wise to emulate Stephen's example. <laughs> he is the most relatable of all the characters. First and foremost, Stephen made a decision to reject the world. He was empty, done with religion. He was burnt out on Hellenistic culture. There was something deep inside of him he was, had a longing for, a desire for. And then he met Jesus. And he counted the costs. He converted. And following this decision, he laid a solid spiritual foundation. How so? Well, he faithfully attended and contributed to his local church. He was there to be fed and to feed, to bless and to be blessed. Stephen trusted God with his future. He didn't see anything as a stepping stone. He was just faithful with whatever God placed in front of him. Simple faithfulness. Faithful. I, I'm reminded of the story of Moses. Moses was the likely deliverer of the, the Hebrew people from Egyptian captivity. He recognized it, felt it, but he acted out in his flesh. He struck down an Egyptian, seeing uh, this dispute happening, and he fled for 40 years. He's out in the desert. He's a failure. He feels like a failure. He's wasted his life. God's done with him. There's no point. And he's just marching sheep around the, around the Sinai when there's a burning bush. And God encounters Moses in this profound and radical way. But Moses is like, I don't know what to do. I'm not equipped for this. What you're asking, I can't. God said, well, what's in your hand? Well, the staff is in my hand. The, the staff I've been using to, to march these sheep around the desert. And God's like, I don't need anything more from you, Moses, than what's already in your hand. As a matter of fact, let me show you something. Cast it down. And he did, and it became a serpent. And he grabbed it back up, and it was his rod. Like, what God is asking of you, it's very simple. It's not the destination, it's the process, it's the journey. It's being faithful in today. 
with whatever's in front of you. Trusting God has everything else taken taken care of. Stephen, he was faithful. And in time, God used him, his faithfulness, by granting greater responsibilities. Stephen had a heart for the lost. He wasn't afraid to speak the truth outside the walls of his church, something that we need to look at. Stephen counted the cost. He knew that the world would treat him like Jesus. When it was all said and done, Stephen, he was a perfect witness. And the way that he lived, the way that he served, he was a witness in the words that he spoke, his deeds, what he did. But he was a witness mainly in the light that he shone. In closing, I want you to know there is a danger in being faithful you're a Christian. In fact, Stephen's faithfulness led him into the darkest situation in his life. Stephen's faithfulness to Jesus led him into a situation where he found himself being lied about, slandered, falsely accused, censored, deplatformed, banned, He finds himself sitting in front of a hostile court. Claims to represent the law. Fairness. Stephen was faithful to follow Jesus. And everything he did. And where did it end? He was stoned to death. But he rose in glory. Yes. Stephen's faithfulness led him into the darkest situation of his life. But you should realize his simple faithfulness also afforded him the greatest opportunity to shine the brightest. The impact he made. Luke chapter 11, verse 33, we're told that no one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand. That those who come in may see the light. Faithfulness will place you often in very dark situations. This morning, may you consider, may we all consider, what type of Christian do you really want to be? I don't know about you, but I want to be like Stephen. For Stephen was a lot like Jesus. So Father Lord, we place ourselves under the exhortation of Scripture and the example provided by...